Welcome to Come and Reason Sabbath School. We're so glad you're here today with us. And today we're going to be talking about the second lesson in our second quarter about the baptism and temptations of Christ. But before we start, let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Father, we know you have so much to tell us and that we can endure only so much. You give us as much as we can take. We pray that you'll fill our hearts and this room with your Holy Spirit. Cast out any evil that may be within us or in our lives. Help us to be, come to you with an open heart, an open mind, to learn what you have to, to tell us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This will be my first time covering for Tim, who's traveling. You know, I brought a friend of mine to this class one time who was of a different denomination. And her impression interested me because she said, oh, you you guys just study so deeply. You know, in, in my church, we just... We like to just talk about the love of God and kind of keep it simple. And we don't, I don't really understand why you feel the need to dig deeply into the Bible, the stories and all the different things. She, she said, it's just a lot to learn. And so what I kind of told her was that, <clears throat> yes, we, we don't believe in knowing all the details is what saves you, but we do believe that God is providing enough evidence for us to open our hearts and trust and love to him in order for us to be saved. And the grace of Christ is what saves us. However, why we want to know something more deeply could be found in a couple of different verses I want to talk to you about today. One is Proverbs 24, 3 and 4, which says, By wisdom a house is built, through understanding it's established, through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. And the knowledge of all the details may not be what saves us, but it fills our room with rare and beautiful tr- treasures. If you travel much and you bring home stuff from places you've been, mementos that remind you of things, different, uh, you know, every time you look at the things you brought to your home, it reminds you of a beautiful t- experience in your life or somebody who cares about you. But in this case, we're looking at a little bit different treasure. Isaiah 33, 6 says, He will be a sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. So when we open our hearts to the fear and love of the Lord, He has so many things, rich things. He compares it to a pearl of great price. Dig for the treasure. And that's what we love to do in this classroom. People who come here often, we love that part about being here. We know that all the details won't necessarily be the difference between saved and not saved, but we just love the experience of learning more about the character of God. So in Luke, what are we looking at? Luke was a Gentile, a converted Gentile, actually. He was a physician. And for those who attend the class here who are physicians, and I'm a nurse by training, they are uh, detail-oriented, smart. They like facts. They don't want to speculate. They want to find out the root cause, and they want to wipe it out if it's a disease. They want to be able to explain it in a way either their colleagues or their patients can understand. So let's see today 
what rare and beautiful treasures Luke wants to show us about God and Jesus. Luke said of his own writing, and he has the longest of the four Gospels, his most detail in a lot of things. He gives some of the, the um, miracles that nobody else talks about. He's really focused on healing, obviously. And he's writing this to a, a Gentile friend. He's got an eye towards writing to people who don't know yet. But he doesn't forget the Jewish folk. But he, he really wants to explain it in such a way that people can understand it. Therefore, Luke is a really interesting book for us to read or to share with other people who don't understand about God. He said, many have undertaken, this is Luke, many have undertaken to draw an account of the things which have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the work. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also for me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. This is a letter to his friend. So that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. So he's basically trying to sum it all up, get the facts, man, and present it to people who don't know in a convincing way that will persuade them that this is the right information. This is good and they should follow God. Luke writes this gospel to present Jesus as a savior for the whole human race. The stories emphasize how kind and loving Jesus is to those despised by society, such as tax collectors, the poor, women. He stresses the importance of prayer in Jesus' life. He emphasizes facts, healing, miracles, parables, focuses on trying to make it clear to the Gentiles how to be saved. When you compare the four Gospels, and we look at the Gospels as Perhaps if you want to look at it this way, four different minds, four different minds. God already knows that we think differently. We need different. Some people are really left brain fact oriented. They want the details. They won't believe it until it's all out there in black and white. Some people are like, I don't want that. That's too deep. That's not what I want. Kind of like my friend. They want the hop, skip, and jump thing that Matt, ha- that uh, Mark has. And immediately he did this, and then he did that, and then he did the thing. He skips a lot of detail, but he kind of gets, you know, hits the high points. And for people who like thinking like that, Mark is great. And then you have Matthew, tax collector, the ultimate left-brained person, the person, the money guy. He wants to know all the details. In fact, only Matthew and Luke talk about the genealogy of Jesus. Because they want the facts. They want to be sure that we understand that Jesus was the Messiah. Luke is the only one to document Zechariah's prophecy about the roles of his son, John the Baptist, and Jesus. In Luke 1, 67 to 79, it said his father, talking about John the Baptist, when Zechariah finally said, his name will be John. His mouth was open. He could finally speak after all this time. So he, at that time, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through those holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, 
to show mercy to our fathers and remember his covenant, the oath he swore to his father Abraham to, to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. And, and this is my favorite reason why Jesus' ministry is important, to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So one of the parts of Jesus' ministry was to allow us to open our hearts to God and love him without fear. That may be a little bit of a foreign concept to a lot of people because infiltrated into our a lot of the 37,000 Christian churches, we'll just confine ourselves to Christian churches, not to mention Jews or, or Arabs who came from the Ishmaelites. Um, we have a kind of a fearful, kind of when is the other shoe going to drop approach to God. Jesus is the good cop, God's the bad cop, and we need to be afraid. If things go along too well, we think, when is something bad going to happen? We're taught to fear God in a way that is uh, creates a distrust almost, Oh. I'm scared a little bit of what you're going to do. If I give my whole life to you, what are you going to do with it? You know, not trusting that he'll do a better job than you would, at least until you get through doing such a bad job with your own life, you're willing to say, okay, anything's better than this. (laughs) What I've done with this life, anything's better than this. But I think that's a... We overlook that as a reason why Jesus came. He did a lot of things when he came. He he had a life to live. He had a death to go through. He had a character to develop. And they all were for us. All were for us. Every part of his life is for us. And so to enable us to serve him without fear all of our days in righteousness is I think a little bit of a, people don't recognize that was part of Jesus' ministry. Because all before Jesus came, mostly we had the Old Testament. And they had gotten it so wrong that Jesus kind of had to come and, you know, course correct and show them that, you know, you, you're, you're not getting this at all. And so that's one of the, my favorite things that Luke points out. And he's the only one of the four Gospels who points that out, who, who talks about Zachariah's prophecy. And then he goes on to talk about his his son, John the Baptist. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven and shine on those living in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the path of peace. How often in our religious history have we not had a path of peace? In fact, that's one of the things that turns people off a lot of times about Christianity is the Crusades and all the uh, torture and whatever in the past on religious basis. You know, believe this or be tortured. Believe this or die. Uh, This is the kind of history that people recognize has been associated with Christianity but that's not the same as guiding our feet on the path of peace. So we've, we've really gotten it very wrong. And it's to the detriment of God. Because that becomes our opinion of God. If God makes this kind of person out of people, I don't want him. I, we have a close relative who is not a Christian, was raised Adventist, but says, you know, shudders when you mention the word God. Because she goes, you know, if God will allow this kind of behavior, this kind of life, 
then I don't want anything to do with him. Well, she's a lawyer. And I would have to argue, if we were in court talking about this, that she would not really want the kind of God that she's asking for. Because if she had the kind of God she's asking for, that God would force her to behave. Force her to do the right thing. Because that's the only way on this world that you could get the kind of life she thinks ought to be had. No bad things and all, you know, the good are rewarded and that kind of thing. You, you know, God enables us to be free. Free. Which means that we can take our little freedom of choice and we can do something bad with it. Something that hurts us. Something that hurts you. We can do that. And so unless God forces us to behave, we're going to hurt each other. She wouldn't want a God that forces you to behave, but she wants the result of that. And that's a predicament that a lot of people are in today in this world. They see all the bad, they blame God for it, they don't want anything to do with him, but they wouldn't want the kind of God, they truly wouldn't want the kind of God they're asking for when they want us all to be forced to be good. Luke is also the only gospel to document Simeon being moved by the Holy Spirit to come to the temple when Jesus' parents brought him there for baptism. In Luke 2, 30 to 32, and 34 and 35, he said, and he was prophesying, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of, of, of all people, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles. That's the first thing he starts with. Not the Jews. He starts with Jesus' birth and life being a help to the Gentiles. And for the glory of your people, Israel. So he counts that in too as important. This child is destined to cause the rising and falling of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken of, of, to be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. For those of us who do study the Bible, do you see how in Jesus' life he fulfilled this? That he, that the hearts, the thoughts of many hearts were revealed? Can you think of any instances where Jesus' very life and what he was talking about revealed their own thoughts? Anybody? Peter, when he denied Christ, he remembered Christ's words to him and was convicted. And you would think that spending three years with Jesus would have done the trick. And no matter, he said, Three times, I, you know, I'll not forsake you. You know, he said, I'll, I won't forsake you. I'll never forsake you. And then, I yeah, I would die before that. And very shortly thereafter, three times he denied Christ. And then when he was converted, he had to confirm to Jesus three times that he loved him. He actually loved you. I do love you. I really do love you. Uh, kind of as a reminder of the three times he did what he said he wasn't going to do. So that he didn't even know his own heart. But he was revealed, and that's on the positive side. What about the Pharisees? And the Pharisees and Sadducees. Mm-hmm. Their true thoughts came out. Mm-hmm. They were always sneaking around, kind of pulling him into argument and thought they'd have him trapped right and left and always confounded because he couldn't, that gummit, he couldn't be trapped. <laughs> but their true thoughts came out. When he tried to do good on Sabbath, for example, Their thoughts about doing good on Sabbath were, 
If you can't make Jesus stop doing miracles on Sabbath, stop going to Jesus to have your miracle done on Sabbath. That was their thought. You know, I can't make him quit. He's just going to heal people right and left, even on Sabbath. That can't be good. So stop going to him on Sabbath to be healed. You know, the, you think of that's kind of a ridiculous viewpoint. Here is a being coming and healing people, and yet they can't stand the idea that you could might want to heal people on Sabbath to the point where they would they would command people to stop going to him on the Sabbath to be healed. That's the only way they thought they could stop him. So all the discuss today we're going to focus though on baptism and the temptations of Jesus. That's this part of Luke that we're talking about. When we're looking at the Gospels, all the Gospels do discuss the baptism of Jesus. And they all mention the descending of the, of the Holy Spirit onto Jesus following his baptism. The only thing they really vary in is what the voice from heaven says. In Matthew, he says, This is my son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. But in Mark and in Luke, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And John doesn't even mention the actual voice and what they said, but he says uh, he was told by the one who sent him to baptize with water that the one upon whom the dove came down and remains is the one who is baptized with the Holy Spirit and is the Son of God. All three, the Father, the voice, and the Son, and this Holy Spirit that came down as a dove, that's the Trinity, one God in three. Yes, and yeah, and that is probably the, the one place we really look to show that God has three aspects like that, that they were all present and accounted for in that instance. So you have the physical form of Jesus, you have the form of a dove, and we'll be talking more about that, and then you have the voice coming from somewhere else saying... Basically, he's Jesus' father, whom we believe is God. Um, Only John does not discuss the temptations of Jesus, but goes straight from Jesus' baptism to gathering his disciples. Only Luke and Matthew go into the detail about the temptations. So you can see that, again, Luke and Matthew are our detail guys. And if you want detail for things, go to, Matt, uh, go to Matthew and Luke when you're looking in the Bible. So looking at today's, um, in the Sabbath school lesson for today, Sabbath lesson, the things I mainly got from that little section are that the historic figures that they mentioned give us a date for the start of Baptist, John the Baptist's ministry in Jesus as probably around A.D. 27 and 28. And then it mentions that how interesting it is that God didn't choose a great man to be the herald for Jesus, but chose a lowly man. I... Um, gave that consideration, you know, about four years ago when we had these tornadoes come by. We have seven huge oaks around our house, ancient oaks, which are lovely. But in times of tornado, they could be a deadly weapon <laughs> to our house. Well, we, it was sort of a miraculous because the, the trees in front of our house went away from the house and the trees in the back of our house went a whole different direction. And with these seven massive oaks, I thought, oh, surely one of these big 
trees are going to fall on us. Well, we ended up with less than seven oak trees. We, the ones we had got twisted off or actually just pulled up and thrown over, and uh, our house survived amazingly. But you know what really interested me was when I went out on the, in the yard after the, the tornado went by the next day, and the big trees were just torn and twisted and all over our driveway and our property, I went out in the yard, and you know what I saw? Little tiny wildflowers. All over the yard. All over the yard. And I thought, isn't that not the way it is? We're told the meek will inherit the earth. So here's these meek little flowers that we trample on without even thinking because they're just wildflowers. And then these mighty oaks, you know, that we're thinking, aha, they're strong, they would endure anything. It was the, it was the little meek wildflowers that endured So when you're looking at who should present God's message, who should be uh, a herald for the Lord, and in these days, who should be a herald for the Lord? We little wildflowers, we the meek are the ones who don't think so highly of themselves, who have to rely on God because they know they don't have it in them. They don't have it in them. They're willing to rely on God. And I pray that we all can be that kind of meek wildflower that God can really use in these days to herald his next coming. But I mean, you know, you can see Jesus used parables and symbolism all over for things that people knew in those days. How many of you, by the way, are shepherds? No shepherds? No? But he used a lot of shepherding parables. He used a lot of other parables we don't normally see. But in these days, I see parables all over the place. I mean, when I was raising my kids, that you could find a nasty dish under their, when, especially when they were a teenager, under, under their bed or something, you know, big moldy thing. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then you bring it to the kitchen, and right next to it might be a plate that has a couple little crumbs. So you wash them, so on. You come out and you hold those two dishes up after they've been washed. Can you tell which one was moldy and nasty and yuck? You can barely stand to be near it. And which one only had a couple of crumbs? No, they're both clean. So when you're thinking, I don't have anything to give. I'm not much. I don't have, there's nothing, you know. I say that God sees you differently. He sees things differently. And he sees your value. And people like John the Baptist who weren't great men. Or Ellen White in the case of our church who was an injured child who grew up to do, to give us insights into God's character. Not great people. But in God's eye, or let's say mothers. You know, you think, oh, you're toiling away, taking care of this little child, changing diapers and doing the same old drudgery thing day after day after day. You know, what value do I have? Well, in God's eyes, you have, you're one of the most valuable people in the universe because you are raising new children, hopefully to see God in the correct light. You have a great responsibility. So we, we don't dare really look down on anybody. I'm thinking those are the most valuable people to the Lord. The little wildflowers of life, they're the most valuable. John the Baptist was no exception to that. 
Let's look at Sunday's lesson. It talks about repentance. What is repentance to you? Anybody? Does it mean just saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry? I'm sorry. I did it again, I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> Change direction. I mean, going this way, you turn around and go the opposite way. Did you, everyone hear what he was saying? It's a change of direction. Your life is headed in one direction. You see where that direction's going. God shows you that what direction that, uh, that's going, where you're going to end up. You change your mind. Go a different direction. They always say, you know, when you put a, a ladder up against a wall to climb it, make sure you know you're on the right wall. <laughs> You know, because just because you're climbing a ladder and you're moving forward doesn't mean the destination is where you ultimately really want to be. Before you start climbing the ladder, make sure that it's on the wall, that, that you know, it's going to the place you want to go. When you take stock of your life and you look ahead and you see what's coming, where do you want to end up? Repentance saying, dear Lord, you know, I, I have made a mess I see where I'm going with this. Things are not getting better. They're getting worse. I can't do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be this kind of influence. I don't want to give this kind of visual instruction to people. I want to be, uh, I want to just open my heart. What I really like about uh, the text that says, uh, Behold, I knock at the door. If anyone hears my voice, open and I'll come in and sup with you. I like it that Jesus brings the food. You open up, you ask him in. He brings everything you need to sup with him. He brings the picnic. He brings the dinner. He's got the goods. Your job is to just open the door. And his life was trying to encourage you to open your door, to get out from behind uh, Eden's trees, for example, and, and allow God to really see into your heart and be like him. So, Repentance. And how do we symbolize that, that death to the old way and the change to the new life? Baptism. So that's what we're focused on today. To baptize actually means to dip or immerse fully in water. Did you know that baptism was used before John the Baptist? Actually, even before John, the Jews commonly practiced this when a Gentile proselyte chose to join the Jewish faith. But in inviting the Jews themselves to be baptized, that was a whole different ball of wax. John was, the Baptist was setting forth a new principle. Baptism is an, is an occasion to publicly renounce one's old sinful ways, that direction, and prepare oneself for the coming Messiah, that direction. So, in that way, baptism is a symbolic of death, of the mind, body, and spirit, and resurrection to a new life. A new spirit. So that's why we like to use total immersion as our symbolic way of symbolizing that we are wholehearted with this decision. Can you, you know, you don't want to partially die. I want to die to these parts of me, but I want to keep this part. Can I, please? <laughs> baptism, is, baptism is saying, I'm not going to try to keep any parts of myself away from you. I'm going to give you the whole enchilada. Jesus used parables that, that also brought up that idea. Like when a plant dies, it leaves seeds. The seeds go into the soil, and it's, um, you know, a little kind of 
seed or a bigger one, depending on the plant. But once it goes into the soil and gets watered, it becomes a whole new plant. But it has to die in order to create a new plant. So that was one symbolism for people who like gardening. That, that really helps. It was also what he was trying to say to Nicodemus at night uh, when he snuck in and he wanted to confirm everything for himself. Another smart guy, you know, didn't want to get off the one boat before he was sure the other boat was, was working for him there. But at least he came. As far as we know, he was the only one that came and really tried to check it out for himself instead of, you know, trying to trick Jesus or send representatives to trick Jesus and try to find fault with him. He was actually trying to get down to the truth. So in that conversation, Jesus talked to him about being born again. Of course, Nicodemus went to the, the uh, you know, actual being born again and saying, how can that be, you know? That's a long time since I came out of mom's womb. I don't think I'm going back. So uh, Jesus was saying, you know, it's, it's like the wind. You don't know, you can't see it, but you can, feel, you can feel the change. You can feel the difference. John the Baptist said about his baptizing, he said in Luke three sixteen and 17, I baptize with water, but one more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals... I'm not worthy to untie. So are we talking about wildflower here? I'm just a lowly guy. I don't even, you know, that's, that's too much for me. I baptize with fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Have you ever, I mean, we focus on the baptism in the water kind of thing. We recognize that means a change of direction. Do we really recognize that when we change direction, we'll get two more baptisms before we're done? Have we experienced those baptisms? Baptism of the Holy Spirit, baptism by fire. So those are the things actually that intrigued me when I was looking at this lesson, looking at the Sunday's lesson. Um, how does Jesus baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire? Well, uh, Paul Corinth. Uh, he's seen certain disciples. He said, have you uh, received the Holy Ghost since you've been baptized? They said, we didn't know there was any such thing as the Holy Ghost. He said, what were you baptized on? He said, to John's baptized. But it says, John verily baptized with the water, but they went and saying that you should believe on him that was come after him. But then Jesus was baptized with the Holy Spirit. I don't know about the car, but the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were even kind of trying to decide if there was a difference between what Jesus was doing and, and John the Baptist was doing. You know, they um, John starts you on the journey of baptism. But that's just the start. You know, we have a couple more baptisms and I, I'm thinking that some of them aren't that, uh, aren't that enjoyable necessarily. <laughs> Let's talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit first. Um, so in Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen to 20, um, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I command you, and surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. So he's telling his disciples to start the journey for as many other people as they can, and let him, you know, uh, take the take it from there. 
Mark 16, 15 and 18, Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news. Whoever believes uh, to all creation, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes in their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They'll place their hands on sick people, and they'll get well. So apparently there's more than preaching involved in this. And maybe that has to do with the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit would like to be able to do through us. Can anyone read John twenty twenty one? Let's look at another text group. I had a question about that <clears throat> when we're looking up the verse. Uh, we believe in the natural law, you know, like if you walk in the fire, you would be burned. And if you pick up a snake, you could get burnt, uh, bitten. <clears throat> so <laughs> when you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, then how is it that the law of nature is not going to apply? Did all of you hear? Were you able to hear that? Good. Well, you know, because abnormal things happen when the Holy Spirit changes the course of your life. I don't know that, you know, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, if you're always bit by a snake. There are people whose whole church revolves around being handling snakes, but they get bitten and then some of them die. So is that a lack of faith on their part, a lack of Holy Spirit, or is it just not worth spending your whole life handling snakes? You know, I, I believe this was meant for more like when you're traveling, you're doing my business, and you're out there, and normal things that would go wrong, I'll supersede that so that you can keep on with your mission and not be destroyed by the various destructive things in the world. Uh, you know, when Jesus was being tempted, which we'll talk about later, he was talking about being presumptuous. <laughs> you know, one of the one of the temptations was being presumptuous. I'm going to throw yourself off so you can be caught by the angels. Well, you know, there's uh, God has a mission for us. And I think this is telling us that the Holy Spirit will change the natural order of things to allow us to go continue on our mission for God uh, and not be presumptuous about it. But. You know, I think it was Paul that ended up, he was around a fire and he was a snake, the viper bit him. And he's an example of somebody who had a mission. And the, and people were shocked. They started to try to treat him as a god because he had been bitten and wasn't dead. So it gave him an opportunity to tell people about his god that kept him alive despite that bite. Oh. Uh, anyone have the verse we're looking at here? John twenty twenty one. Okay. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. <laughs> so here's an example of perhaps Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit. And if we, if we carry on the idea of baptism with water with just total immersion, does that carry over to baptism with the Holy Spirit? Can we let partially let the Holy Spirit in? You know, crack the door, let him in just a little, just 
or do we need to fling those doors open and go wholeheartedly? That's just a start to get started, but when the Holy Spirit, he's a teacher and a comforter, and he comes into your heart, then you get on fire for the Lord, and you do things that you would you say, I can't do that, but the Holy Spirit helps you do that. You're willing to go and try to do that. Does God ask us to do something that the Holy Spirit can't make us able to do? Even if we don't think we could do it, or maybe we never could do it. You know, I think in my life, sometimes things have come along and I've had a hard time understanding those things. But the Holy Spirit has been able to show me a better uh, attitude about them, has been able to help me heal from the really bad things of life that I've been through and probably everybody's been through. I mean, basically, what are we? We're all running through a minefield, right? <laughs> we're going to get our legs blown off. We're finally something. One of these mines is going to kill us at some point. I mean, we're all kind of um, racing toward the end. That's kind of a tragic way to look at things. But on the other hand, I mean, it, it isn't a bed of roses this life, is it? I mean, how many of us get through here unscathed and have this wonderful, perfect life we all think we're going to have? But the Holy Spirit may not, God doesn't prevent it. In fact, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. It's like, I promise you, you will have trouble. But he's the best lemonade maker I know, is all I can say. Is we, I've been handed some pretty tough things in life, as probably everybody here has. And we can spend the rest of our lives being bitter about things, being resentful, trying to get even, and so on. Or we could allow the Holy Spirit in, Help us to understand other people's behavior. Help us to have insight into how to interact with them, even though they've hurt us, even though they've damaged us, maybe sometimes even permanently we are scarred. But the Holy Spirit, one of the things the Holy Spirit has done in my life that I appreciate is healing from the bad things. And then... That gives you insight and maybe even compassion to what's going on in other people's life. You know, if you think your life was going to be perfect with the little white fence and everything's great, what would ever in life give you the compassion to go and meet other, other people in their tough times and give a, be a light at the end of their tunnel? Somebody, one of my friends, um, compared the Holy Spirit to the spiritual Internet. <laughs> a being who says... You have this need, and um, you have the answer to that person's need. So I'm going to connect you two. And if you have an open heart to the Holy Spirit, he'll give you what to do, what to say, how to help. And it's a lot of fun when that happens. I mean, really, have you had that experience where you know the Holy Spirit brought, found you because you could meet the need of somebody else? You wouldn't even know that. I just have maybe one example I'll share. As a nurse, I was a case manager. I would go to go with people to their doctor's appointments and help get their care coordinated and so on. And I remember getting a new case one day, what we called a dog case. <laughs> that is one that's been going on and on and nothing's better and things are worse. And they said, here, you fix it. <laughs> so... I called, the, I called the employer and I said, what's going on? They said, oh, this woman, you know, she's still coming to work. She's, we got light duty for her, but she's just, you know, it's not better. And she won't talk to you much. So I, I uh, 
called the woman, and I listened to what she had to say. My, my, that woman was talkative. When they, they had warned me that she wouldn't say anything, well, she, she said many things, which then began to really concern me, because she was talking about, and she'd been injured maybe a year and a half before, I took one look at the name of her doctor, and I thought, here's the real problem. <laughs> so I, so my, one of my plans was to get to a different doctor. That was one thing. But I had to listen to her first, and I had to see what was going on. She said, I hurt so badly. She said, my kids have to carry me to the bathroom, and I'm, I, I just can't even hold my bowel or bladder until I get there a lot of times. And she said, that was pretty new. And she said, I'm just afraid to stop. I'm afraid if I lay down and don't do anything, uh, I'll, I'll stop being able to walk. So she just forced herself day by day to go to light duty at work and try to muddle through somehow. Well, she talked to the point where I got really concerned. I started asking her questions, and I thought to myself that she is developing cauda equina syndrome. Now, I'm a nurse. I'm not a doctor. I can't diagnose, but I have suspicions. <laughs> And you'll know that that's one of the true spinal cord emergencies. And that she'd been going on for a year and a half, but these were new things. So I called the insurance company, and I, because I'm like a nurse between the insurance company trying to help things out. And I said, I have real concerns about this woman. I think something really bad's happening. And she said, I trust you, do whatever you want, which is a nice thing, you know. To, so I got her in with a good spinal surgeon the next day away from her other doctor who was just uh, not a spinal surgeon or doctor. And, um, <laughs> uh, oops, <laughs> uh, he's no longer practicing in the area, so we're good. <laughs> but uh, the, the surgeon came out of the waiting of the exam room and he said, Linda, she has cardioquina syndrome. I'm like, I thought so. <laughs> I thought for sure that's what she had, you know. Um, the nurse came out and said, how'd you pick up on that? That's kind of subtle. And I, I said, well, I talked to her and listened. Uh, the doctor wanted to do surgery on her that very day. It was so bad. But she had loose ends and things she needed to do before she could have surgery. So he did it the next day, which was a Saturday, which shows you, you know, how important he felt this was that she get done. Well, the woman... It, it, the waiting room was nearly as big as this room here, filled with people. And this woman that the employer said would not talk very much, she flung her arms around me, crying and saying, I'll never forget you and I'll never forget this day. She said, I have been praying, God, send somebody to help me. I don't know what to do. And she said, when I heard your voice, I thought, she will help me. Well, you know, as uh, Paul Harvey, the rest of the story, he went in and did surgery and came out of the surgery. And he said, I can, I can, you know, usually the, I won't say this, but I will say that the delay in getting this care, proper care done for her will cause her to be in pain the rest of her life. It should have been handled a whole lot earlier. Um, but he did the best he could. He said the, the disc had way a big disc had come out and it had been there so long that it had scarred itself to her nerves. Well, you know, as a surgeon, he took off as much as he could, but he couldn't, he didn't want to paralyze her, you know, so he had to be real careful and had to leave some of the stuff which was stuck to the nerves. But I thought to myself and prayed to the Lord and, you know, I thought, this is really fun. Do this some more, Lord. I think he wants that. If you could start each day saying, fill me with the Holy Spirit and whoever you want to talk to, 
whatever you want to do something to, let me be your mouth, your arms, your legs, something somebody can see to show you, to show them who you are, who's invisible to them, but they can see me. So I can talk, I can do, I can act, and all I need is a little direction. And I don't know who needs what he does, so he needs to bring him to, to me, or bring me to them, whichever, and uh, give me the words to say, the acts to do, and let me... Uh, I'm great with this. How many of you would like that in your experience? Where you feel like the Lord looked around and picked you out and said, boy, you have just the thing this person needs. That could be your experience every day. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit, is being baptized by the Holy Spirit. is fully just saying, I have plans, but hey, I'm willing to, you know, adjust those if you bring somebody you need. You know, I have, uh, there's almost, uh, I would say every day that I pray that something like, not that dramatic maybe, but similar, happens. Or the Lord, the, this world is an oozing mess. An oozing mess of need. There isn't anybody who doesn't need something, who doesn't need compassion, who needs a light at the end of their dark tunnel. The Lord can use each and every one of us. So being baptized with the Holy Spirit is a great thing. It is not only is great for them, because this woman was, was thrilled, you know, to finally have someone listen to her. The other thing is, there were two of us that worked for that same company. The other nurse was would have been very busy, too busy to have really in, you know focused on this woman's needs, and she didn't know what Kadaquina was and didn't know you know how important it was to take action on that. So in you know the luck of the draw, they could have handed the case to her. Maybe she wouldn't have been helped. Maybe she would. I don't know. But I think he uses what we know, and, more, and that's one reason to get well-educated, to learn as much as you can, to keep learning, so that in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, you can meet more and more and more and more needs. You know? You know, Linda, too, and isn't it interesting, we've been talking about prayer a lot lately, especially within our family, and that I don't know that it was so much the prayer was changing God and making him more receptive to taking care of this woman, rather it was working in, you know, her heart, your heart, you know, these people to bring them together. I agree. I think that um, too often we treat God like Santa Claus. I put my quarter in or I, I you know, w- wish for something and you're supposed to give it to me. And if you don't give it to me when I want, the way I want, you're bad. You know, shame on you, bad Santa. <laughs> I saw a skit one time. Where somebody said had the it was talking about Christmas and it was a joke, but it was really shocking to me because they had these magnetic letters on a board and it had Santa on there and it was saying who could be responsible for the way Christmas is now? Not about God anymore. It's about Santa and all that the elves and what have you. And he took the N in Santa and moved it around and put it at the end. And what did that spell? Satan. Satan. <laughs> I'm like, ooh, okay. <laughs> but we treat God a lot like Santa. And if we do that, maybe whose who's attitude are we emulating? Satan? Maybe the prayer should be more like, I don't have insight like you do into other people. I don't know what they need. I'm liable to say it just as wrong as I could say it right. But you do. And instead of telling God what to do, how about if we ask God what to do? 
to help us get into alignment with his plan, to show us his insight, because I think one of the greatest miracles of Jesus wasn't necessarily healing, and, you know, that's probably easy because God created and he can recreate. But I think one of his greatest miracles was having insight into people. And John said, you know, no one had to tell him about anybody. He knew every man. If we had that kind of insight, that would be miraculous to really know what's in a person's heart, what they really need, how to approach them, like the rich young ruler, how he said, I kept all these commandments from youth. But Jesus pointed out how he really hadn't, because if he had, he wouldn't be hogging all the riches for himself. In reality, he wasn't loving his neighbor as himself. He was keeping, he was becoming a a lake not a river of life. He was damming it all up and trying to keep for himself. Jesus has that kind of insight into us. He has that kind of insight into everybody. And prayers, I think, ought to be more related to allowing the Holy Spirit to uh, get, us in, get us in alignment. Like you're saying, get us into alignment with his plan for that person's life rather than us just telling him what to do. Uh, well... <laughs> I'm going to, I want to, we have, what, 10 minutes, so I want to uh, just mention that on, in several other texts, it talks about the, the disciples, the apostles all getting together, being in unity and praying, and then they had, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and people heard them speaking in tongues, it goes on to describe what those tongues are, and they were the languages of everybody there. Their multinational people were represented in each and every one. It'd be like me talking, and you being Egyptian, and you being, you know, Spanish, and, and you, no matter what I'm saying, you're hearing it in your own language. That's a miracle. That's the tongues that they were talking about there. Um, so let me, uh, let me talk a little bit about the baptism by fire. We got, we talked about the Holy Spirit and how a wonderful of a wholeheartedness, the, the Holy Spirit can baptize you by fire and make you a real instrument so that people can see God. You know, I just want to give one little, uh, more story before I jump into the fire part. I'm in a singing group, the Master Chorale. Dr. Bruce Ashton is our leader. Very uh, devout man, very spiritually oriented and a wonderful influence on us. We were singing one time. I'm in the alto section, so I'm over here, right? And there's a little girl. We go to some of these little churches around and sing. Well, they have preliminary parts of the meeting. And so I'm sitting here and there's a piano over there. And this young child, this young girl is trying her best to get through a music piece. Well, if any of you know Dr. Ashton, you know that he can play a, a whole Rachmaninoff's thing with a uh, uh, piece without music. Uh, you know, he's an expert, a wonderful pianist and musician. But here he stands at the podium, so, you know, he's facing us. I can see his face in the middle and her over there. She is struggling, I'll tell you. Here, here we have this master pianist here listening to her. And does he have a scowl like, oh, God. Please get it. Please get it. No. He's just listening pleasantly, and uh, she gets it. Hey. She starts up. She picks it up. She starts playing, and this little smile comes on his face like, good, yay, she's got it. And he starts keeping time with his finger to her music, you know. And I thought, just sitting there, talk about sort of a parable, I thought, I've seen the face of God. Do you not think that we are like that little child to God? How capable he is, 
how may, how what a and you were little sort of incapable beings struggling along in some fashion or another to get it. But how pleased he is when we finally get something and move forward in our life. And I bet if you think in your life, you can think of times when you've seen the face of God. When somebody has shown you, we can't really see the face of God. But if people could look at our lives, and by the way we allow the Holy Spirit to live in us, be that face of God for other people, by our attitude, you know. Baptism by fire. What does Jesus do that way? Any ideas? What the fire could be? In this class, um, Tim emphasizes the design protocol of God's law and of the symbols represented uh, in the Bible. I really believe that um, the fire, as one of the elements, shall we say, of the earth, is indicative of the energy that we can get from God. It's also indicative of the, the kind of destruction that can be caused if we don't control that. We don't allow God to control that energy in us. And I really believe that um, that that's sort of a summary of the of the usefulness of the fire in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, because we're understanding truth, but we have to be able to put the truth into practice and, and you know, take out the, the selfish stuff that would keep us from practicing the truth. So it's a little like um, clearing the brush off your land, <laughs> so to speak, you know, in order to make way for something new you want to put on your property, you gather the brush, the stuff that would be in your way, and burn it. Right? Malachi 3, 2 to 5 says, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he'll be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He'll purify the Levites. And spiritually, aren't we the Levites? We're the priesthood of believers. And refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by in former years. Do you think that's a really um, easy, I mean, does that sound fun? <laughs> to have the sin burned out of you? Because in the presence of God, sin burns. At the time of Jesus' coming, if you're filled with sin or have sin in you, you won't be comfortable in God's presence. Um, Malachi 4, 1 to 3 says, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant, arrogant, you know, you don't think too much along those. Every evildoer will be stubble. In that day that's coming, will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And you'll go out and leap like calves released from the stall. You'll trample down the wicked. There'll be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things. So in our lives, maybe the baptism by fire is the refinement, the getting rid of the, the brush, 
the wicked brush that, that's in our lives. Burn it off. It's not a, it's a, I would think it's kind of a painful process, at least in my, in my life. Yeah. Uh, kind of a, just a supportive verse, um, Revelation 3.18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white and white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And anyway, it's kind of going on with that support. And maybe we're a little bit afraid of that. Maybe that's one of the reasons we kind of hold back. I really don't want that. That sounds like a painful process. But do you? But when Christ comes, when God comes to to re uh, to reestablish Himself on the earth, the only the uh, let me put it this way: in Isaiah thirty three fourteen to sixteen, the sinners in Zion are terrified, trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with the everlasting burning? Who would that be? We're talk, we're, some denominations talk about an everlasting burning that they would call hell. But the Bible talks about an everlasting burning that is the very presence of God. That the wicked can't endure and live in. But apparently... The who can is answered by he who walks righteously and speaks what is right, who rejects gain from extortion, keeps his hand from accepting bribes, who stops his ears against plots of murder and shuts his eyes against contemplating evil, not even thinking about it. I mean, how much TV today, for example, is contemplating evil? This is the man who will dwell and the heights, whose refuge will be in the mountain fortress, and so on. So it's talking about who can dwell with this everlasting burning. And the answer is the righteous for eternity can live in the fire. Could this be a possible baptism by fire? If you don't allow him to use the fire then, the fire to weed out the brush of evil in your life, in the end... The fire will weed out. <laughs> it will take you over. It won't, you won't be able to endure. And sadly, it looks like we're, our time has come to an end. We didn't even get to the temptations. We'll put these notes online, though, and you can uh, enjoy them there. But uh, I would like to you know, say that there's so much more. There's really interesting stuff in the, in the temptations that we didn't even get to. Uh, hopefully can cover that more at another time. Thank you for coming, and and, uh, let's bow our heads. Dear Father, thank you so much for being with us today, filling us with the joy of your Holy Spirit, with the opportunities you have abounding in our lives. Even if we feel like we're little wildflowers, you have a mission for us. Please fill us with your Holy Spirit, with your insight, with the abilities that you need us to have to meet the needs of the the desperate world around us filled with pain and misery make us your lights your salt your love in jesus name we pray amen amen, amen.